2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 26 to 31, beginning at verse 26. If you're all ready, I'll go ahead and do that. Verse 26. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together, and he went to Rabbah, and he fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it, and he set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and he made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. We just heard that uh, sometimes we have to rearrange our uh, finances to get our hearts where they need to be. I think that also applies to our values. So let's pray and ask the Lord to guide our thinking so that we get our hearts where he wants them to be. Lord, we are grateful to be able to come to you and look at your word, and we ask you to bless it to us. We know that we're inclined to stray away from you. And so we ask you to help us. Help us to get our values in place and help us to have our hearts where they ought to be. And may you guide us to that end as we look at these verses now. In Jesus' name, amen. Fifth and Franklin, do you know what's there? There was an article in the paper this week uh, a property at 5th and Franklin used to belong to Horatio Trexler. It was a private residence, and about the beginning of the 1900s, the building was sold to the Elks Club. And since then, well, for a number of years, it's been in decline. But the Schumann Development Group has bought the property, and they are in the business now of restoring it and making it a pristine place as an event center in Reading. All of Berks County, as a matter of fact, is the way they publicize their renovations. Now, one of the things that is on their minds is keeping this property in line with is it, its historical nature, and so they have to be careful to match, for example, some of the woodwork with the old woodwork, the way it used to be. I'm looking forward to touring the place. Restoration is a, an important theme in the Bible. If you look at the Old Testament, there, the word is used about a thousand times just in First and Second Samuel. It's about 90 times. And we're familiar with some of the places where there's reference to restoration. Psalm 23, he restores my soul. Uh, Psalm 51, David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restoration is important for us. We want 
when we drift from the Lord, for him to bring us back to a place of increased usefulness, deeper love for him, more faithful service. Today, we're going to look at David's public restoration. Uh, this is the next installment of the account where David has uh, sinned against the Lord, committed adultery with Bathsheba. He's then set up Uriah to be murdered by the Ammonites. Nathan has come to him and, and uh, declared his guilt, and David has repented. And so there is some sense in which restoration is already on the move in his life, but it's not full. So we're going to look at these verses we just read, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 26 to 31. This, I believe, is David's last battle. And um, we're going to look at it in, from these vantage points, the challenges to restoration and then the path to restoration. You'll notice right away that these verses are broken into two sections, uh, verses 26, 27, and 28 focus on Joab and his interaction with David, and then verses 29, 30, and 31, David responds, and uh, we'll see about where that takes us. After we've looked at those two sections, uh, the challenges and the path to restoration, then we want to come back and say, all right, how might this help you in the week that's ahead? So what's a challenge to restoration? Last week we noted that after Nathan declares God's word of rebuke to David, David says, I, I, I've sinned. And Nathan says, the Lord's not going to uh, judge you for it. However, the child that Bathsheba bears, she is, he is going to die. But the Lord is going to be faithful to his covenant to David. And the Lord is going to continue to communicate his love partly through this baby that will be born, Solomon, whose name reminds us of shalom, peace. But there's Joab still at Rabbah and still fighting the king's battle. And it's a problem. Did you ever think about where David's death sentence left Joab? He's the commander. He's a loyal commander. He's a gifted commander. He's a public military leader. And Uriah is a top-tier soldier. He's named in the Bible as one of the 33 best military men under David's uh, authority. And so now, Joab is left in this conundrum. He is to fight the battle in Rabbah and be successful in such a way that Uriah dies in the process. How's that going to happen? Only, as we read the story, at great cost, there's going, to be, there's going to have to be collateral damage, and there is collateral damage. And where does that leave Joab? 
Well, it leaves him in a most awkward spot. I would think, the Bible doesn't say, but it would seem as as if it leaves him in an awkward spot because he's the commander. Why would a good commander let some of his best men die on the battlefield? Seems... So, Joab keeps up his good work. He is ready to take the city, and then he sends a message to David. And the message is this. David, uh, I've taken the city. Now you come and formally take the city. It's a kind of tricky thing, though, for Joab to send that message. Tricky from this vantage point He's really communicating, David, when you come and take the city, if you take my advice, um, don't forget I'm the real power behind the throne here. I'm the one that's won that's victory. And there may have been an implied criticism. And David, you know, you should have been here all along and then we wouldn't have had this whole mess that has developed. Now, in order for David to be restored, what's going to have to take place in his own persona. Well, he's going to have to uh, acknowledge his inactivity and shift gears. He's going to have to somehow address his guilt and shame, which hangs over him, even though he's confessed his sin to the Lord and Nathan has reminded him of the Lord's forgiveness. And he's going to have to somehow deal with his own pride of position as the king. Let's just pause here and do one little takeaway. What is Joab doing in his relationship to David when he sends this message and says, hey, David, you ought to come so that you can get the credit for the victory rather than me? Isn't he managing upward? Isn't that what you'd say? He's telling his superior, hey, this would be in your best interest. What else is he doing? He's simply working out one of the implications of the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment is, you know, honor your father and your mother. And what that carries with it is this idea that we have a responsibility toward those that are superior to us, those who are inferior to us, and those who are our equals. And... Joab is relating properly to his king, his superior, by saying, hey, come and get credit for this victory, even though I've really already done the heavy lifting. On a Father's Day, might we just say to ourselves on the side, how are you doing with the fifth commandment? What are you doing as far as your relationships to your superiors, your inferiors, and your equals is concerned? And as you think about your fathers, whether they be fathers in the church or fathers in your family, how are you doing with keeping the fifth commandment?
Well, so much for the challenges that are before Joab and the challenge before David to his restoration. Well, let's think a little bit about the path. Now, as I said before, uh, God and Nathan and Bathsheba and Solomon and David, uh, all of the way in which they have related to one another up to this point, and particularly the, the previous section, points us in the direction of restoration. David's family is now, as you would think, somewhat back intact. I don't know how to exactly resolve the other wives and the concubines that David had. I don't know what to do about that. But at least as far as Bathsheba is concerned, uh, they, he, she and David are about to have a baby. They do have a baby. His name is Solomon. Uh, there's some peace now in the family. And now, David takes Joab's advice. Please notice uh, verses 29, 30, and 31. What happens? Well, David rises to the occasion. He does pack up his bags, and he brings people with him, and here they now come to Rabbah. And he fights against it, and he takes it. And then let's notice verse, the beginning of verse 30. It's kind of funny, I think. Um, it says that he took the crown of their king from his head, and then parenthetically the narrator tells us, the weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was precious stone, and placed it on David's head. A talent of gold, maybe there's a footnote in your Bible, weighs 75 pounds. I, don't, I think it's probably twice the weight of this. That's what I'm guessing. Imagine David putting that on his head. I mean, he, if he wore it very long, he would need some serious physical therapy, right? <laughs> when I read that, I thought to myself, I, can, I remember pictures of women in African countries, I assume, walking down with big pots of water on their head. I thought, I wonder how that would work. Well, anyway... David assumes his role now as the king. He is victorious over Rabbah. He has the king's crown on his head for a little while anyway. And then we're told in verse 31 that uh, he brings the people uh, who were in the city and he sets them to labor. And then there's an interesting note as well toward the end of the verse. He did this to all the cities of the Ammonites. David is back in gear, it would seem. He's successful as a military leader. And then we get to the end of verse 31, and what do we find? He returns and all the people to Jerusalem. It kind of reminds us of what we saw when David had killed Goliath. Remember the celebration that makes Saul so upset? David and the army and Saul in the army come back and uh, 
the women are dancing and they're saying, uh, David has, or Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands, and now Saul, he can't get over it. It's such an insult. I imagine it was that kind of celebration that is uh, pictured here at the end of verse 31. Now, what I want to do is just take this short passage and try to summarize it in this way. It's the end of chapters 11 and 12, and the author is very careful to balance his description of what goes on. So chapter, one, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, begins with David sending Joab off to Rabbah to fight the Ammonites, and he stays home. And now, as we look back over the whole scene, it's, it appears as if there may be a, an, an inference here. You know, if David had stayed home, all this sin and misery wouldn't have happened. And now we get to the end. And there's this comment about David and all of his people go back to Jerusalem. And it appears as if there might be another message, message there along these lines. As long as the king is faithful and works with his soldiers, then he's on the right path, and it would appear as if, taking those two as balancing points, the comment that Uriah makes when David invites him to come home for a little rest and relaxation is to the point as well. You remember what Uriah says? David says, why don't you get down to your house, have a nice meal, spend the night with your wife, Uriah says, can't do it. How can I do that when the other soldiers, my compatriots, uh, my leaders are out on the battlefield? I'm not doing it. And of course, the point of the way in which chapters 11 and 12 are structured is to get us not to think so much about the Ammonites. They're kind of on the back burner, but rather to get us to the real center of the whole thing, which is chapter 11, verse 27, where we get this little comment, that which David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. God is interested in addressing David's sin because of his covenant commitment to him. Remember what we read back in chapter 7? The Lord says in verses 11 and 12, I will make a house for you. When your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Imagine it. The Lord is going to fulfill his promises to David even though David has behaved in such a awful way. Yes, because God is the God of grace, right? He hasn't dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. And so certainly, as we come to the end of chapter 12 and this whole account of, 11, of chapters 11 and 12, certainly it's the case that David's restoration is incomplete and imperfect. 
and it necessarily then points us beyond itself to some kind of kingdom that is perfect, that is complete. And that kingdom is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? There is a kingdom coming of which we get to a taste right now. There's a kingdom coming where everything will be set in order. There won't be any blemishes at all. And all tears and sorrow and suffering and crying, those will be a thing of the past. That is coming. So listen to the way in which Paul expresses that in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, In Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Isn't that great news? Jesus is making peace through the blood of the cross as far as anything on earth and anything in heaven is concerned. This little section shows us David being restored, but it points ahead to this larger restoration that Jesus is accomplishing in which you're invited to live. That's the force of it. David experiences restoration a little bit. You're invited to live in this restoration that Jesus has accomplished through faith in Christ. And what you experience now is just the beginning of a much fuller restoration that's going to encompass all of creation. So the invitation, first of all, is come live in this coming kingdom by faith. Come, wherever you are, wherever you see yourself as an outlier to the, the people of God, you're on the fringe of the church, this is for you. Come, live in this new kingdom by faith that Jesus is creating. But then there's one other point of application, I think, that we want to make. And it's this one. The Lord is calling you in this new kingdom to be a person who, having experienced restoration through Christ, now extends yourself to be an agent of restoration in a very broken world. Can you think of any place where you might give yourself to affect restoration today? Might the Lord be calling you to that? Look what he's done for you. For those of you that don't know, and I didn't know it until I looked at it a little bit, uh, the, the country of Ghana... Uh, has as its national language English. However, there is a trade language that is common to people, which I believe is Iwi. 
So besides that, there are people who live in Ghana who speak other languages. For example, if, I, if I'm saying this right, and you may need to correct me, uh, there is a, a Pakfu people. Did I get it right? Apokfu. There's an Apokfu people, and there's also a Lodai people. You know about them. Yeah. They speak the language Siwu. A hundred years ago, there was some falling out between the Apafu and the Lolobi, and nobody can, ever, can remember whatever happened. For some reason, they were no longer on speaking terms. Wycliffe Bible Translators was asked to come and work with them. And um, the way Wycliffe does their translation work is this. They get local speakers, and uh, then they have linguists that come in, and they break down the language into an alphabet and then words and they compile a lexicon and then they create a translation team. And the team is made up of various local speakers. And so the linguist will say, okay, is this the way the verse goes? And he'll read it. And then they'll have back translation so that Native speakers will say, oh, no, that's not the way the verse goes. If you want to communicate that idea, you have, to, you have to say it this way. Well, in this case, Wycliffe got some of the Akpafu people and the Lobi people on the same translation team. And you know what happened? They were, first of all, amazed that God spoke Siwu. They didn't realize that he spoke their language. But they did. They, they came to that amazing realization. And after that, they also realized that they share a common language and they might be able to set aside the difficulties that had fractured them for the last hundred years. And so one of the takeaways is now they're playing basketball together. That experience shows us the power of the Word of God to affect restoration. Uh, restoration of dignity, reclaiming of relationships, and uh, revealing of hope. And isn't that what this passage in 2 Samuel teaches us? There is hope for those that believe. The Lord can restore David not to perfection. He still had to deal with the results of his disobedience. But the Lord restored David so that he could serve, continue to serve as king. And the Lord is in the business of restoring people like you and me too who have shattered paths so that we can be of service to him. So let's thank you. Lord, we bless your name. We pray that you would help us as your people to follow after things that make for peace. May we, having experienced the restoring work of Christ in our lives, be people that affect restoration in the lives of those around us. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. We pray these things in his name. Amen.